welcome to the LMA podcast featuring thought-provoking conversations with legal marketing and business experts. We hope you enjoy today's episode. My name is John Buchanan, and I'm the Senior Communications Manager at Shepard Mullen. Welcome to Predictions, Possibilities, and Problems, What's Coming for Legal PR in 2020. Last December, I hosted a podcast to focus on what 2019 might be for legal PR. Given that podcast's popularity, I thought it might be good to do it again this year. So today, on this Legal Marketing Association's PR and Communications Shared Interest Group podcast, we're going to talk about what's ahead for legal PR in 2020. Before we talk to our PR experts who are going to share their predictions and perceptions of the year ahead, let me share a few stats. 82% of C-suite members say that traditional media is the most valued source of content for business, industry, and or legal news and information. 69% of all law firms have YouTube channels, and almost 100% of law firms are on LinkedIn. Half of all firms have no clear plan for the role of digital marketing in crisis management. With that as some background and context, let me introduce you to today's panelists. John Corey is founding partner at Green Target, where he helps professional service firms establish authority positions and participate skillfully in the conversations that matter most to their key audiences. He advises many of the world's leading law firms, management, consulting, accounting, private equity, venture capital, and other service organizations. Jamie Diaferia is the CEO and founder of Infinite Global and helps professional service firms and their clients with high-stakes communications matters. Jamie has been named one of Law Dragon's 100 leading legal consultants and strategists in 2016 to 2018, PR News' 50 Game Changers of PR, and his chambers ranked in its 2018 PNR and Communications Supplement. And John Hellerman is president of Hellerman Communications, an award-winning corporate communications agency positioning professionals to win business and navigate crises. John is a fellow of the College of Law Practice Management, was recently ranked in Chambers and Partners' inaugural litigation support guide as top PR and communications advisor, recognized in the National Law Journal's inaugural list of 50 business of law trailblazers and pioneers, and named Agency Executive of the Year by PR News. John, Jamie, and John, welcome. One quick note, given that we have an abundance of Johns participating in this podcast, I'll refer to John Corey as John C., John Hellerman as John H., and Jamie, I'll just call you Jamie. So before we jump into the podcast, I'd like to ask our panelists to make one prediction they think will come true in the next year as it relates to legal PR. We won't hold you to it, but it'll be interesting to see if what you predict actually happens. John H., why don't you start us off? Sure, John B. Well, first, thank you very much for having uh, me <laughs> participate. I'm going to go out on a limb. I'm going to say two things, actually, if I might. One, yeah. I think that there's going to be an increase in original research. I think more firms have been doing surveys and those sorts of things for a long, long time, but I think we're going to see a rise in those as the value of that type of content is on the rise. And then secondly, I, I would just predict that there's going to be a tremendous amount, obviously, of political coverage over the next year, uh, given the uh, election. And I think that some firm or a number of firms will be caught up in that coverage, probably in a negative way. And I think that that's something that, that several firms will have to deal with in uh, 2020. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think you're right on both of those, and I, especially on the date on the survey and data stuff. I years years and years ago, the accounting firms were really geared up in doing that, and I, now I think the law firms are finally catching up to that. Uh, John C. or Jamie, what do you think? Well, I can jump in. This is John C. This one isn't super exciting, guys, but I'm going to say collaboration between PR and business development teams. I think we're going to start to see more of that, and it's picked up pace quite a bit, I will say, in the second half of this year. And I think it's because more than ever, PR needs to connect the dots between the awareness we are building and the door-opening conversations that we're driving based on the content and the stories that we're producing, which ideally is in alignment with firm strategy. And when you think about it, 
historically, PR and business development have been very siloed disciplines within marketing. But with a continued focus on revenue and market share growth, which we know is top of mind you know, across firms, across the planet, there's tremendous advantages to working together. You know, The BD teams increasingly know the voice of the client and the central value proposition of their respective practices. And then you take the PR pros who can then harness that intelligence and develop more impactful thought leadership that business development and chief client execs can use to get valuable face time with clients. So there's a win-win here, and I think we're going to see more of it heading into 2020. Yeah, well, I think that's the smart thing. Hope most hope firms will embrace that idea. And Jamie, what do you think? Yeah, tying into what John was saying, which I completely agree with, everything is just all coming together. So I, I don't really like buzzwords, but omnichannel marketing is, is here, it's what we're doing. And it's it's such a nice contrast to when we all started our careers and we were basically one-trick ponies, right? We would go out, get a media placement, and then we would encourage them to email it out, uh, email out some sort of a reprint. I mean, it, it seems quaint now. But we've got all these tools. Lawyers are embracing the tools. I think you'll see more and more of that. But what I think they'll really do is invest more time and energy into looking at the data and figuring out what's working, what's actually resonating with folks, and then making uh, alterations based on that. Right, rather than just kind of doing it and playing by ear. Yeah, I think that's right. Okay, well, those are some great things. We'll see how that plays out. Um, and so let's get to predictions, possibilities, and problems for 2020. So the first topic I want to talk about is social media. And social media is you know, not, not the bright, shiny new toy anymore. And all firms use social media. And it's one of the main tools for getting your story out there. So now we're starting to see a lot more video on social media, especially on LinkedIn. And so since law firms lean on LinkedIn so much as their main social media platform, do you think more law firms are going to jump on the video bandwagon and start to use more video to push out their news? And if they do, what are those videos going to look like? Jamie, can you give us some thoughts about that? Sure. I mean, we've been trying to push video for years, and it always seemed like there were obstacles that got in the way, even though it made a lot of sense. And it made sense because it, it forces lawyers by default to market the right way. And what I mean by that is it showcases their personalities, which is really the goal, right? So right. we've been pushing that for a long, long time. The obstacles were always cost and ease of use. But nowadays, you can use your phone, you can make a pretty good quality video and, and do some light touch editing and get something that's 30 seconds long uh, in usable shape that you can send out to the various audiences you care about. I, there's a tool that I looked at the other day, which I have no uh, interest in. We're not using it um, personally, and I don't, we don't, they're not client, but Passel, which allows you to basically push out content really quickly. And, it, and what that does is it, it does all the things that you're supposed to do, which is react in a timely way with useful information that showcases your personality. So I think that will definitely increase. I, I think things like video emails, video press releases, video podcasts, it's starting to sound like Forrest Gump, uh, video pitches. I mean, I think these are all things that will personalize the experience. And so it just allows the, um, the end user to get a, a sense of what the, the attorneys are all about, which differentiates them in some other way. Yeah, and I think you're seeing some research to say, show that, you know, C-suite especially like to get stuff video. I mean, I think you're seeing some of that. So I think that's probably... Any other comments, guys? I have a few things that I was going to chime in with. Yeah, I'll go ahead and just I'll go ahead and do it. I didn't know if John each wanted to jump in. But, you know, I guess I have a, a little bit of a contrarian view just based on some of the data. And I know there's different data, different statistics out there. But I think it just it really depends on the audience, right? So if we're talking about general counsel, if we're talking about C-level executives, we're seeing in our research the video scores lower on the list of the most preferred types. You know, the, the top, the most preferred uh, content formats are articles, 
conferences and events, newsletters, interactive charts, uh, and podcasts. All five of those are preferred over video. In our, in our 2019 State of Digital and Content Report, we interviewed 100 GCs. Separately, we interviewed 100 C-level executives. And video ranked sixth for general counsel and ninth, respectively, okay. for the C-suite. And the C-suite, you know, 75 of those 100, John B., were uh, CEOs yep. and CFOs. So that being said, there are other, very other important stakeholder groups to consider, right, in this equation. There are internal audiences. Yep. There's recruits. There's alumni. There's media. There are other influencers. Yep. And I think we can all agree that video done well is absolutely an opportunity to differentiate a law firm brand. You know, like Jamie said, yep. showing showcasing the personality and the personal, you know, assets that different lawyers bring to particular problems or situations. I just, I just don't think we've seen firms really do it well yet. And yeah. I think it's I think it's gaining traction. This is John H. Just to say that I think it would be great for video to continue along a useful path that it seems to have broken through for B2C type communication. But as John Corey mentioned, there still is this resistance within, I think, the executive offices to consuming B2B type content through video. We've done our own proprietary research with, uh, with breaking media and found sort of the same uh, results that the Green Target Survey found. Um, but I'm hopeful because it is such a useful medium. And for some groups like recruits and others, it really is one of the most useful to showcase, as Jamie said, personality and the yeah. style and tone of the firm. Video is, is a lot of things. It's, it's long form, it's short form. And so yeah. perhaps some of the, the, the reviews that you're hearing are reflecting bad video or the video that was done in the early days. <laughs> Just keep, you know, keep in mind, we're the old guys now. And so things are changing and, and tastes change as well. And perhaps if they build uh, something that's a little, that will resonate with the younger generation, that will become more the norm. Well, yeah, there's exactly. a cultural thing, too, that firms need to overcome, right? Because it's still difficult for a, a young partner to come out of their office and on their way to maybe a, a deposition, cut a 30-second video, edit it, and then release it without four or five layers of controls before that, and then maybe taking some of the timing out of it, et cetera. So, you know, it's just something that's coming. But I think that certainly in 2020, as, as we've discussed, it's going gonna, it's gonna, to, towards the end of the year, you know, play more of a role than it did in the beginning of the year. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yep. Good point. All right, well, let's go into our next topic, which is thought leadership development. Um, you know, thought leadership overtook the word leverage as the most overused word in PR in 2019. And because law firms, at the end of the day, compete on demonstrated expertise and reputation, how can PR pros and firm marketers go about developing really true thought leadership in, in a noisy and oversaturated market where everyone's slinging content here and there and calling it thought leadership? How do you differentiate that, and how do you really do really good stuff? John C.? Yeah, you know, I think we're all going to bring some interesting perspective to this question because it's so vitally important to everything that we are doing in the promotion and elevation of professional services firms and certainly law firms in particular. So we've been measuring the information consumption needs and preferences of GCs in the C-suite for the better part of a decade. And we've been combining this with our own campaign experience and editorial judgment that you kind of develop and refine along the way, and we've created a framework that guides us in developing what we consider to be true thought leadership. And I, and I want to emphasize the word true in there because I think it's worth noting that not every piece of content is thought leadership, nor does it need to be. You know, if you're talking about just day-to-day -day articles, client alerts, newsletters, 
there's a lot of day-to-day content that's getting out the door to different audiences that's timely, that's serving a specific need, but not every piece needs to be thought of as thought leadership, and that's especially if we can agree that the goal for thought leadership is to produce content that causes consumers to move from being an interested but passive reader to an engaged client prospect. So, and I think it's important, you know, to to have agreement on that definition, or just or however you feel about that definition. Um, for us, it's you know, if the objective is to produce content that supports client development, you know, content that's going to help move an audience beyond awareness and let's say into consideration or convergence within the funnel, then we believe true thought leadership should meet four key criteria. The first is relevance. You know, it needs to be applicable. It needs to be material. You know, it needs to tell that audience, uh, you know, that this has a direct impact on my business. Number two, it needs to have a sense of urgency to it. You know, it's important right now. It's time sensitive. You know, I can't afford to ignore this. Three, it's got to have some type of novelty to it, some type of new information or a revelatory insight. You know, in, in terms of, you know, I haven't heard anything quite like this before. This is an interesting point of view. But most importantly is the quality of utility, okay? And that's what we've been hearing. That's what we found in our latest research of the past year, that it is the most important attribute to both GCs and C-level execs. They want the content to be useful. They want it to be actionable, something that's going to help them to do their job. So don't just tell me what happened and don't just provide some useful context, but also give me some actionable guidance. Give me give me something that's going to help me figure out how I can start to address the problem. I know you're not going to give me all the answers in a given piece of content, but show me that you clearly have some experience and can help me to navigate this issue because that's going to be, you know, all the more likely for me to pick up the phone and give you a call. I always say, this, what does this mean to me? That's what's really important here, because you've got to make sure that you communicate that. Otherwise, it's, I mean, it may be interesting, but it's not useful. So. Exactly. Guys, anything, yep. Any other comments? Any other comments about thought leadership and what you guys are seeing? Yeah, I'll jump in and say that I think it's listen. A lot of lawyers' expertise is fungible, right? With the obvious bet the company exceptions. So, yep. whereas I think John C is focusing on the substance of it, which is important, and I can't dispute anything he's saying. I just go back to the the, the piece that's not fungible, which is good storytelling, something that uh, that comes across in a personal way and that distinguishes the person from other lawyers out there. I think a lot of times the, the substantive piece will be consistent, but it's how you think, it's how you approach problems, it's the way that you would be to work with. And I think that's a lot of stuff that can come across in the thought leadership as well. So it's not purely about the substance of it, which is clearly important, but also just that conveys that, that human piece too. In addition to what John C. said and, and, and where Jamie was going in terms of just, there, there's just a fundamental aspect to thought leadership development that I think most of us all know and practice, but, but might not really have a handle on the fact that we're actually doing it. And so, I mean, there are just rules that make thought leadership easier to produce and, and effective. And so one of those, obviously, is uh, we talk about thinking and, and working in campaigns, right? You don't want to create just one article about something. You want to have uh, a mix of media and content around the issue that you're speaking about. So you might want to have a bilang article, you might want to have a Q&A, you might want to have some, some quotes about it, you might want to have spoken about it. But as you put together that package of coverage of your expertise, that sort of becomes the credentialer uh, of your expertise. 
And uh, we've done research over the years that suggests that that package resonates similar to an actual uh, sales referral from an actual person. But there are other things too, right? I mean, you have to remember the audience, you have to tell the story, you have to keep it simple. Um, But also I think that there's this element that, you know, there are things that make up news, proximity, uh, the impact, how unusual is it, how timely, what's the prominence of the people involved or, 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 or the people that are affected by a problem. Um, you know, what is that conflict? There's always some sort of conflict or drama. And I think that you don't have to have all of those things in a pitch or in content, but the more of them you do, the more likely you are to be successful in, uh, in achieving your goal of, of getting something in the, in the news and yeah, other you know, channels. Yep, yeah. Yeah, that's something that I, I this is a, a philosophy I've re- recently become familiar with, something called core, you know, create once, repurpose everywhere, which is kind of making sure that you're taking what you're doing and, and using it in as many formats as you can to get you know, as much mileage out of what you're doing as possible. I think that's some part of what you're talking about as well, John. That is. I um, mean, there's that word those, leverage. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Bring that word back, yeah. Uh, all right, well, let's, let's go to our, another topic, which I think is a really interesting one, and I think, John, you kind of alluded to it, or John H., you alluded to it earlier. Um, it's the issue of politics. Um, the, the ongoing tension between the Trump administration and the media and, and the significant amount of time, airtime that friction is sucking up has had a huge impact on media relations, and it, it seems almost like crisis communications, or at least you know, managing tough stories and tough people, has become routine rather than rare. Um, but what are the, some of the ways legal PR pros need to approach their work now in this somewhat new world of media relations? And, and as we move into an election year, are there some tips and tricks that our fellow legal PR pros can take advantage of? And since John, since you mentioned this earlier, why don't you take this and initially and run with it? Okay, sure. Well, um, certainly I think that the political coverage over the last several years, and especially the way Trump has dealt with the media, and frankly, you know, the whole fake news concept and his delegitimization of a lot of the coverage um, that, uh, you know, of him, uh, I think has really changed uh, the, the tactical landscape um, that we as sort of crisis communicators participate in. I think that um, his behavior has opened up the door a little bit to some tactics that might never have been considered before. Um, you know, he certainly made being aggressive and taking on the media uh, and uh, being very, very forceful, much more acceptable. Um, you know, back in the old days, you, you really had to argue to do anything that would, you know, pick a fight with the folks with the barrel of ink. Um, yeah. But these days, uh, it's really important to make sure in that fight that your voice is being heard. And sometimes you have to go uh, over and around the press to do that and almost build up these sort of tribal factions of fans that are going to support you no matter what. And from a law firm perspective, you know, they're not running for president, but um, in times of crisis, you know, they might consider what their alumni are doing and making sure that they're all on board. All the things that we sort of did in the past, but I think that it just becomes much more relevant in this atmosphere. Um, yeah. So there's the changing of, of just tactic and strategies. And then there's just the, the coverage of politics and the potential to be caught up in that. So whether it's uh, trade of China and you have a regulatory practice, et cetera. But I think firms are going to have to be very careful of where that third rail is, and it's probably going to be constantly shifting as the issues shift. Right. Well, and I, and I think all firms, I mean, my firm currently especially, very thoughtful and careful about, you know, kind of getting connected with any kind of specific political situation or particular party because of the wide range of clients and the wide range of, of viewpoints within the firm itself. So it's very interesting. 
John and Jamie, what, what, what are you guys thinking? So there's a lot of different ways to answer this. And uh, one is the impact it's had on the in interactions we have with reporters. And I've worked on a, a couple of high profile situations this year where I've noticed, and this is not an indictment of, of reporting, but it, things have changed a little bit. There's a lot more competition to get a story first and faster. So what happens when that occurs? Sometimes corners get cut. And so I spend a lot more time now putting things in writing, which I didn't have to do as much in the past, which is, is this on the record? Is this on background? Is it embargoed? And really getting that, that negotiation in writing so that everybody's clear. Because when those corners get cut, then sometimes stories get out that you don't want out there. Uh, the second piece is what you alluded to, John, which is I, I do think there are opportunities to, uh, to speak on these political topics. A lot of law firms will just shy away entirely from something that is tinged with politics. But if you learn how to straddle that line, then there are going to be a number of opportunities that you're missing out on to comment on things in the news. And, and that just requires training to teach the spokespeople how to navigate that without, as John said, stepping on that third rail. That's a great point. John Corey, anything? John C.? You know, I I think Jamie and John H made some excellent points there. So yeah, nothing to add. It's a, yeah, it's a really interesting topic. I mean, I'll be curious to see how this all plays out over the next year. All right, well let's go into um, let's talk a little bit about data. We we talked we kind of talked about it a little bit here and there throughout the the conversation, but but with the investment in and focus on data across you know law firm functions and disciplines, are there any practical approaches to data driven storytelling? that law firm PR folks can employ to give their stories more oomph or that increase their memorability or uniqueness quotient? And, and, and John C., I know this is an area that you, you kind of are interested in. What, can you talk a little bit about that and kind of the issue with data and the various ways that data can be used? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, and I think we're on the very front end of this. I really do, just in terms of some of the new tools out there, the new technologies are, that are out there to help harness data and to segment it and organize it in different ways. And I just want to say up front that, you know, data-driven storytelling, I think that means a lot of different things to different people at this very early stage. You know, it can, it can infer, you know, building research and stats into your media pitches, social listening, media monitoring, you know, different things that we do, you know, to monitor influencer conversations. These are all things that, you know, we can, we can glean insights from the from these different tools that give us insight into these different areas. What I think is really interesting right now, where we're starting to really get focused, is on SEO. Now, we hear a lot about how storytelling enhances and benefits SEO, right? We publish a piece of content, we use the right keywords, and then it makes that piece of content all the more visible on the digital properties where it resides. Well, what a lot of people don't realize is that SEO – can actually drive better storytelling. What I'm talking about is using SEO research as a proxy to understand what audiences are searching for right now and what that can tell us about their needs in terms of content. Yeah. Now, it, it'd be great if it, we could like visualize um, a, a graphic because this is this is a topic that's a little bit easier to address visually. But bear with me. You know, when conducting keyword research on a topic, right? there's going to be a small group of words that individually have really high search volume. And they're going to typically be pretty general terms. Then there's going to be a lot more keywords that individually have low volume, but they collectively make up about 70% of the queries. It's called the long tail, and this is what our digital and analytics 
folks, you know, that's, that's their terminology. But what's interesting is that those queries in this tail where there's the lower volume, they tend to be pretty specific. They're multi-word, and they're really good at showing user intent, which gives us a clue for how we can structure content to meet user needs. So I'll give you an example. We took the topic of opportunity zones, and I'm sure John and Jamie, you guys have yeah. been working closely on this topic with a number of clients over the last year and year and a half. Well, we wanted to understand how are audiences searching for this topic? What are they thinking about? Because we can do you can do a regular Google search and you can see what's really in the public domain right now. Keyword research is about identifying what people are searching for and hopefully taking the patterns within that over thousands of keyword searches and identifying a few topics and themes that haven't yet been reported on. They give you some fresh ideas. So for Opportunity Zones, we found three things. Three things came out of it. Folks were searching for educational resources, which made sense, right? They wanted to know, you know, what is an Opportunity Zone, IRS Opportunity Zones, Opportunity Zone resources. That all made sense. Number two, folks were searching by geography. They want to know about opportunity zones within specific geographies at two levels. The state level, say California, Texas, Colorado, and then the regional level, New York, Chicago. And actually the Keystone area in Pennsylvania came up again and again because this is a very regional type of opportunity. Um, understanding where the greatest number of search volumes and queries were happening gave a couple of our clients the opportunity to do very regional specific campaigns to investors and other stakeholders within those markets. Then the third piece here is maps. You know, we heard a lot that, you know, the different people were searching uh, for heat maps of investments in opportunity zones, how they've changed, what's evolving. So, and we know as storytellers that it's a lot more interesting to have a visual than just to talk about something with words. So the visualizations, you know, really gave us the, the clue that this is a great way to make rather complex data seem simple and interesting. So taking those three different pieces of insight, then we built a campaign to get the first couple of pieces of content out the door for one specific client. And then what's really cool is that you can see how those individual pieces perform, what particular industry sectors or folks that are, you know, that are tuning into that content, engaging with it the most. And a few things came out of that in terms of specific industries like telecommunications. And then you can start to get real targeted with follow-on business development activity. So, the idea, SEO analysis gives us ideas on how we can make content more interesting and actionable, and we do it by determining what the use cases are and then designing content to support those cases. So I'm just starting to get more, you know, more, more involved in these campaigns. It's being led by our head of digital and analytics, who's also working with our head of research and planning. So it's an interesting collaboration between research and digital to identify these opportunities and then how you see the traditional account teams you know like that you have at infinite jamie and john the teams that you're working with how they start to work with those folks to figure out okay how do we build a campaign out of this how do we do day-to-day -day media pitching and storytelling with the data so again i want to emphasize we're on the front end of it and not every one of these you know these search processes will 
you know, will uncover something interesting, but oftentimes they do. And so I think it's going to, it's going to be interesting to see where we can take it from here. Yeah. Yeah. Jamie and John H, what are your thoughts about that? It's pretty interesting. Yeah, I was going to say everything John said. No, I'm kidding. The, <laughs> I think the, the main takeaway that I can add is just that it's it's amazing that this this has existed and does exist, and we're using it in our company. I'm sure every, a lot of agencies like ours are, but why law firms aren't doing it to the extent that they should be is, is the part that puzzles me. So I, that's along the lines with my prediction at the beginning. I do feel like they're going to put more in time and investment into this because they have to. Yep. Well, I, yeah, and I'm I'm hoping yeah. more firms do it too because I do think that we're miss, we're missing the boat by not taking this information we have and use, using it in a proper way. We're just still shooting a little blind out there, I think. But with help from from all of people like you guys, maybe we can do a better job of that. Um, all right, so we just have a little bit of time left, so I want to get, jump to the final thing. Um, before I finish up, I want can you each of you share one thing that you want to make sure our listeners take away with them today. Um, Jamie, can you jump to go first, and then John H., and then John C.? Sure, and I probably said the same thing last year, and I'll probably say it every year, but <laughs> the reality is that the tools change every year. The, the, the tools that uh, we can use are always going to evolve, but the fundamentals of the job never change. And so everything that we do is still about identifying and disseminating core messages, telling stories. The how we do that, that's the part that will evolve, but it's important to me that everybody still understands that the core job still matters and always will. Yep. John H.? I couldn't agree more with that, sure. Um, Yeah, I I would just, I guess, add that um, we talk a lot about awareness as the sort of an, an, an end goal of PR activity. And I happen to come from a camp that think that awareness as a goal is sort of too broad and too unmeasurable um, and much too expensive to make it less broad and more measurable for a lot of the, uh, the firms that are actively participating um, in PR. And, I, and, and so from, from that, if awareness isn't going to be the goal, you know, you want to use PR, not just do PR. And I think that, uh, you know, there are still firms transitioning from sort of checking a box to really using this um, as a strategic tool. Um, we like – I like to call it content-fueled business development. You know, it's a credentialing tool that helps, uh, you know, create options and opportunities for, 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 for lawyers. Um, and you want to create content that's worthy to share. So know what your audience wants. Make sure that it's uh, in a credible outlet that your, your lawyers will be um, happy about, and then share it. And not just share it, but flood the channels with different types of content around that issue. Uh, and that's really important. That's the campaign part of it. Yeah. And you and John C. Yeah, you know, and I was gonna I was gonna give props to Jamie because he is the one that said last year, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And um, totally, totally agree with that. You know, yeah, you know, firms. Getting back to the fundamentals, you got to have a crisp message in an overarching firm narrative. And I think the things that we're starting to see that are really important is just understanding key audiences, how their needs are changing, making sure that what you're doing from a day-to-day public relations point of view, because we can get caught up in just the minutiae in the firestorms of the day, but making sure that you know, you're taking a step back and 
that you know that the strategy of PR is driven by firm strategy, and just being deliberate, being intentional about the stories that we tell, how we tell them, the different combination of channels through which we tell them, it's you know it's all really important. And since we're talking about PR, I think PR professionals within firms need to remember that they preside over the most trusted, incredible communications channel of them all, which is earned media. So deploy this tool effectively and thoughtfully. You know, your individual firm brands will be the better for it. So I think I think PR is the is a really exciting place to be. And it's yeah, it changes yeah. all I agree. the time. <laughs> Yeah, I think Amen. we all agree to that. All right, well, John C., Jamie, John H., thank, thank, thank you so much for spending some time with me and our listeners and sharing your thoughts about what 2020 might bring for legal PR. And to all of our listeners, thank you for listening, and have a wonderful holiday. Uh, if there are any PR and communications podcast topics you'd like to hear in 2020, please feel free to contact me at jbuchanan at shepherdmullen.com. Thanks again. That concludes another installment of the LMA Podcast. To discover all that LMA has to offer, visit LegalMarketing.org. For links to content featured in this episode, please check out the show notes. If you like the podcast and want to help others find us, we hope you'll take the time to subscribe to it and rate us on iTunes. Thank you and have a great day.